Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane. We're continuing our program's Foundations in Faith. Today, we're going to look at the Gospel according to St. Mark, the first chapter, the 29th to the 39th verse. This Gospel picks up where our last um, Gospel um, ended. We have seen in the last Gospel he was teaching with authority, and therefore he was fulfilling the prophetic mission of the Messiah. But part of the mission of the Messiah also is to overcome evil in the world. And while the, the Hebrews typically thought of that overcoming in the evil of the world as to striking down evil powers and evil structures of the world and so forth, that they felt very strongly this is what the Messiah would do. But we're going to see Jesus do it in a different sort of way. And so what we want to do is, is keep in our mind, first of all, this is the fulfillment of that Jesus is involved now in the fulfillment of the prophetic mission of the Messiah, but also in the mission of triumph over evil, in a sense kind of the recreating of the out of goodness out of the evil world again. And so we we find that in the gospel today. And so it says on leaving the synagogue, Jesus went with James and John straight to the house of Simon and Andrew. Now Simon's mother-in-law had gone to bed with fever, and they told him about her straight away. And he went to her, took her by the hand, and helped her up. And the fever left her, and she began to wait on them. Now, Jesus, as we know, has made his home as an adult in Capernaum, and that it is the hometown of Andrew and of Simon. In this case, also, James and John are with him now in Capernaum. Andrew and Simon say, well, this is our hometown. So they invite Jesus to their home. When they get there, um, Peter's mother-in-law is sick with a fever. You know, in those days, a fever was a significant sign of something seriously wrong. Um, we know now that we have treatments for fevers. We get alarmed if, if a child's fever is too high or if an adult person's fever is too high. And, but we have ways and means of medicating them. In those days, a fever could be fatal. So it meant that Peter's mother-in-law was very ill. And Jesus simply went to her right away, and he took her by the hand, and he helped her up. Um, in other words, she was suffering a great deal, and uh, she was probably very seriously ill. And Jesus simply raised her up out of that illness. He has overcome the e physical evil that had afflicted Peter's mother-in-law. And the fever left her, and she began to wait on them. This is an interesting thing, too, because first of all, you could say, you know, isn't, isn't this kind of uh, sexist or something that you, 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 heal, you heal the woman and, and then you have her, you know, wait on you? What probably this is all about, Andrew and, and then Simon have brought Jesus home his, and there are other friends, James and John. And when you bring someone home into a Mideastern house like this, it's for a meal. It's in order that the hostess would feed them and wait on them. That was not a demeaning position, but that was an honor to wait on your guests, as in many ways it should be and, and is today. 
Jesus enables her to fulfill her mission, her task, that which she would felt, have felt bad if she had not been able to do. So she gets up and she waits on them. And I think that this is something we have to understand too, that when the Lord gives us gifts of any kind, um, when he helps us to overcome adversity, when he, when he helps us in any way at all, even helps us through physical illness or through mental anguish or anything, he, he does it for us, certainly. But the intention always is that whatever we have received from the Lord, we are obligated in a way to share that with others. And this is a paradigm of that kind of dynamic. Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law, and she immediately gives back for what she has received, not only to Jesus, but to her son-in-law, um, her son-in-law's brother, and their friends. And so it's kind of like a little story for us to remember. To remember whenever we feel like some way, shape, or form we've received something for them from the Lord, that it isn't something for us to consume and keep to ourselves. It's something for us to share generously with others. If he has given us consolation, then in a way we should be consoling others. If he's given us physical health, then we should wait in some kind of way on the needs of those around us. If he gives us some kind of joy, that should be shared. If he gives us some kind of wisdom, that should be shared. So that it is part of the whole dynamic of Christianity that what the Lord pours out upon us is for us to pour out upon others, that it may return to him a hundredfold, that it may return to him fulfilled. And then it says that once this had taken place later that evening, after they had had their repast that Peter's mother-in-law had prepared for them, apparently, after the sunset, they brought to him all who were sick and those who were possessed by devils. And so once again, he had healed Peter's mother-in-law, so now all of those who are sick and all of those possessed are brought to him. The whole town came crowding around the door. And he cured many who were suffering from diseases of one kind or another. And he also cast out many devils. But he would not allow those devils to speak because they knew who he was. Here again, we encounter what we call in Mark the messianic secret. That, first of all, Peter's mother-in-law, it's known, and you know, in a small town, especially a small town where everyone is ext lives extremely close together as they do in, in the ancient Near East. And, it's, and if you go through the old city of Capernaum today, you see that everything, you know, houses are connected by common walls and so forth as you walk through the narrow streets. People knew everything that went on in a small town. And in this case also then, the town has heard that Peter's mother-in-law was cured, and so they bring all of the sick, sick and those possessed by demons. Both of those are signs of the presence of evil in the world, both the physically ill and the possession by demons. We know that in the Bible that physical illness is the result not of individual personal sin, but the sin of humanity. And so to overcome an illness is therefore to overcome the grip that sinfulness has on the human person. So this is an example now where Jesus demonstrates not only his power as Messiah, 
but his power over evil and therefore his messianic mission. For the evil he overcomes is the evil of the presence of demons. It is the evil of the presence of physical illness. It is the evil, it is the presence of evil in the world and Jesus overcomes it. And so he is, in fact, fulfilling the messianic expectation. He's just not fulfilling it in the way that the people expected it or wanted it. It may be a better way to say it. He didn't go and crush the Roman Empire. There is nothing political about Jesus in any, in any of the Gospels. He shows proper civil obedience to the Roman authorities, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, go down and catch the fish and take the coins out of its mouth and give them in, in our payment for taxes and so forth. It doesn't mean he approves, but he, he never sel he seldom mentions them at all. His anger for in any kind of leadership capacity against any kind of leadership capacity is the hypocritical and the fraudulent leaders of the people of the covenant. It is a religious problem. It is a religious question. It's a question of faith. It's a question of living the covenant. It's a question of using the covenant for what the Lord established it for and not for your own personal gain. And uh, that's where his anger lies and that's where his condemnations come. There was, for instance, and this came out, well, it came out during the Second Vatican Council. There was a film by Pierpaolo Pasolini, a very famous Italian filmmaker who was uh, both a homosexual and a communist. He made this film, The Gospel According to Matthew. And it's a very long, I don't know how long it is, maybe three hours long, a black and white film in which he portrays Jesus always kind of as an angry revolutionary. And it, the, the film gained quite a following when it came out. As a matter of fact, um, many of the bishops of the council were, were kind of compelled in some ways to watch the film. It was a total misinterpretation of the gospel according to St. Matthew because we don't find Jesus stomping around uh, Palestine angry and hurling uh, all sorts of epithets uh, against, you know, the wickedness of the injustices of the age and so forth. That's a modern portrayal. That's kind of the, that's kind of, in a way, the prefiguration of the God of the social justice warriors. That's not who Jesus is as he comes out of the Gospels. Do we see any anger or any rage in him here? What do we find him, Mark telling us about him? Mark is the disciple of Peter. Mark is representing Peter's remembrance and Peter's understanding and Peter's interpretation of the mission of Christ. He heals a lady and she waits on them. They bring those who are sick and possessed to the door and he heals them, he cures them. He's overcoming the power of evil. He's overcoming the real power of evil. And the real power of evil is in fact that which is perpetrated upon humanity through the sins of humanity and the cooperation and exacerbation of it by the demons. That's the evil that this Messiah is overcoming, fulfilling completely the expectations that were placed on the Messiah, just not in the same kind of context in which they had expected them. And then it says, in the morning, long before dawn, he got up and left the house and went off to a lonely place, and he prayed there. We know that frequently in the gospel, Jesus takes recourse to conversation with his father, and that he tries to do so. He tries to find a lonely place. He tries to find solitude. He tries to find silence. 
Um, there's no indication that he's in any way, shape, or form antisocial or that he doesn't enjoy in some ways the camaraderie that he e experiences when they go to Peter's home. Um, nor does it mean that in he in any way resents people coming to him for healing and so forth. It doesn't mean that at all. But it means that even in the stress of his daily life, knowing exactly there is an arduous road ahead, a very difficult road ahead, and probably a deadly road ahead, that every once in a while he stops and he removes himself from the crowd and he takes refuge in a conversation with the Father and the Word speaks with the Father. And in the speaking of the Word with the Father, the things that should be start to come to be. And so Jesus now goes off. His companions, of course, have no concept whatsoever of the necessity of uh, allowing him his free time. And I think that, you know, we all find that too. Have we ever really, truly desired, really desired free time? Some time of solitude, some time of silence, sometimes with the Lord. But if you're a mother or a father, the children usually don't let you have that if they can help it. And we find it very difficult in any way, walk of life that we have of finding that kind of time to ourselves. So Jesus takes it when he can get it, and that means early in the morning before the dawn. As soon as his companions find that he's not there, they go immediately. They don't say, well, you know. Maybe he's, you know, maybe he wants to be by himself. Maybe he's on his own. So no, they set out immediately in search of him, because and when they found him, they thought this would throw him. You know, everybody's looking for you. In other words, no, you don't have this kind of solitude. You don't have this kind of free time. People want to, people need you. They want you, you know, come back. And he answered them, let us go elsewhere then to the neighboring country and town so that I can preach there too, because that is why I came. And so he says, with resignation almost, it sounds like, all right, all right. But I'm not going back just to enjoy the, the celebratory um, atmosphere of Capernaum right now, where so many wonderful things have happened. But if we're, if, we're going to be, if we're going to be up and we're going to be moving, we're going to be doing this, we have to start moving on through the rest of the towns because I came for all of Israel. I came for everyone. He then leaves his conversation, his solitude with the Father, and he heads off. And it says he went all through Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out devils. He went into the rest of Galilee from town to town, preaching the gospel, teaching with authority, in other words, fulfilling the prophetic mission, and casting out the devils, fulfilling also the messianic mission of overcoming of evil. So we have before us then in this gospel the story of Jesus and the beginning now. And this is the first chapter of Mark, so the beginning now of his, of his public ministry. And we get to see anybody who is in a way of life that demands uh, encountering large numbers of people all the time. Know that while there is something gratifying about being able to serve people that are pleasant and nice, that there is still at the same time throughout the course of the mixture of human beings that we run into, that it is also draining and also very tiring. And Jesus now is, and Mark is telling us, you know, that Jesus does not shrink from that. He does not hesitate from that. He moves on. And in moving on, he now goes through the rest of Galilee, 
preaching and overcoming the powers of evil, casting out demons. So this is what the gospel gives to us. And we might ask ourselves then, you know, and once again reiterating, the gospel is for every time, every place, every age. It's not locked into the first century. And so if we're seeing this, we found two things now. We're finding the popular expectation for who the Messiah is. Jesus protects and guards by refusing the demons to testify to him. And then, on the other hand, also, he fulfills the prophetic mission of the Messiah, and that prophetic mission is speaking with authority, speaking the authentic words of God and not just the wisdom of man. And then he overcomes the power of evil, which they wanted him to do. They wanted him to do it like David did it, but in fact, he does it like the Son of God does. And so he has fulfilled both aspects of his messianic mission and is fulfilling them in this gospel that we have. And he continues the fulfillment of that mission in the contemporary world as well. He does so now sometimes through the personal touch, sometimes through the miraculous cure, sometimes through the authentic private revelation sometimes through the apparitions of himself or his mother or one of the saints, sometimes in those ways. But the normative way that he does it is he does it through the church, which makes the, the struggles of the church and the wounding of the church particularly egregious because they attack, viciously attack, the messianic mission in the modern world of Jesus Christ. That when, in fact, the preachers of the word preach themselves and not the revelation that comes from Jesus Christ, then in some way, shape, or form, they tarnish and make less credible the messianic, the prophetic, the prophetic mission of the church, the authenticity of what the church teaches and what the church says. When, in fact, they sink into deep and serious sin, then they become part of the presence of the darkness of evil and are counter-witnesses, therefore, to the overcoming of the darkness and the powers of the prophetic mission of the messianic mission of the church. That's why, you know, we've said before, there is no such thing as a personal sin because any time that we contribute to the darkness, we contribute to the counter-witness to the presence of the Messiah and the messianic mission of the church. This is what is so horrendous about the sex abuse scandal within the church um, and other scandals as well, you know, the financial scandals and all of the things that remind us of the darkness of human nature, of the, of the brokenness of human nature of the ugliness that human nature can participate in. All of that reminds us and says, how is the church to be credible if in fact the church in its people contributes to the kingdom of darkness and distorts the whole notion of the prophetic voice of the church by preaching and teaching that which is not of God, but which is of themselves or of their political party or of their social ideology? or any of those kinds of things. We find it in every extreme. We find it in the extreme progressives, and we find it in the extreme conservatives. We, we find it in those places which cling 
sometimes to the external realities and ignore completely the deep and profound redemptive messianic mission that the church is on in the modern world. We looked and we saw that not everyone in authority in the church participates in the prophetic voice of the church, that essentially the prophetic voice of the church comes to us in the definitions of faith, and that, that we have in the church, that come to us through the authority of the Petrine office in the church. We find that we are bound to honor those and to proclaim those and to revere those as truths, truths that are good for humanity to know, truths that help us to understand more deeply the person of Jesus, the role of his mother and the saints, the role of the spirit, the person of the father and so forth. All of those things are necessary because they tell us who these people are, how they are related to us in our life, in our journey, in our struggle. They tell us all those things. And those are the things that we strive for and those are the things we should be seeking. Not our own visions, our own dreams, our own hopes. It would be so good if those were in conformity with the mission, with the messianic and prophetic mission of the church. But when they are not, they become, in fact, part of the cloud of darkness. They become part of the inability to believe. They become obstacles to faith in the lives of others. And that really is the most serious damage of all, is that they make the church less credible, and therefore the presence of Jesus Christ in the world less credible. For Jesus has invested himself, and we see that in the Gospels when he calls his disciples. He has invested himself in the church. He has invested himself in his disciples. He has trusted his disciples to carry his mission and his, his, his message into the world in every time and place. And when we become obstacles to that, rather than disciples who carry out the mission of the Lord, we do irreparable damage to the human spirit, to the human soul, to the human mind, to the human body by allowing rampant evil to come unfettered into the world. We have to realize that. We are not just isolated individuals. It's kind of interesting that there's some, you know, controversial and incomplete theories in the modern physical sciences that kind of see representation of the whole in the pieces of the created universe. And we have that within our relationship with God. He is within, we are in his image and his likeness. When we don't represent that image and likeness, when we cloud the reflection that God, that we should be of God's presence in our world, then we bring a darkness and a hopelessness into the world. If we were to treasure the human life that the Lord has given to the world, we would not see abortion, we wouldn't see euthanasia, we wouldn't see war, we wouldn't see violent physical crimes, we wouldn't see those kinds of things. But we do see them, and so we know that in some way, shape, or form, our sins are part of the blindness of the modern world. And that the way to overcome that is to listen attentively to the prophetic voice of the church. That means the authentic voice of God within the church. And also to watch in what way Jesus overcomes evil. He overcomes evil through doing away with the consequences of evil in the world and doing away with the sources of that evil. 
This is the mission the church is on. It is the mission of the Messiah. It is the prophetic mission, and it is the messianic mission of creating a new kingdom, of overcoming the evil powers in the world, but in a way that is authentic, in a way that represents the merciful heart of the Lord and the Lord's great love for his people. This gospel, therefore, is for us a paradigm, something we might want to look at, and we might begin with the very first part. He raises Peter's mother-in-law up from her seriously ill bed, and the consequence of her healing is that she serves others. Maybe that is something we might want to think of ourselves in our own lives. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com. So